Hello and welcome to ESPN Scrum Reset. My name is Sam Bruce. I'm the associate editor of ESPN.com.au and joined for the first time in a long while, virtually since the start of Super Rugby Aotearoa and Super Rugby AU. It's a pleasure to bring back in Liam Napier from Across the Dish. Welcome back, mate. Cheers, mate. Good to see you, boys. And of course, Christy Doran back with us again. He's had his the first of his COVID jabs to take off and cover the Rugby Sevens at the Tokyo Olympics. Um, how's that arm, mate? Arm is good to go. Uh, I feel like I could almost be out there with the team. But you know what it just dawned on me? ESPN scrum resets. We saw a few of those on the weekend, didn't we? Sure did, mate. And uh, hopefully um, we can work through those over the coming weeks because nothing kills a game of rugby like endless scrum resets. Um, I know they've scrapped the timing, uh, the time limit like we had in Super Rugby AU, but uh, if we can uh, get a few more successful scrum sets, that'll be uh, good for everyone involved. Um, boys, uh, of course, we're going to rip straight into the, the Trans-Tasman competition. Um, I think we all feared what might happen first week up from an Australian perspective. Uh, I personally thought there might be one win in there, either for the Reds or the Force. Uh, it didn't happen. It was 0-5. Uh, the headlines write themselves. But, um, Christy, I'll, I'll start with you, mate. Um, how bad was that week one? Um, or does the that 0-5 perhaps not tell the, the full story of, of what went down, particularly given the, the two uh, late conversions that were missed and, and how close the Brumbies went to, to knocking off the Crusaders there in Christchurch? Well, there, there you go. It, it, You've summed it up nicely there. It doesn't tell the entire picture, um, zero and five. It, you know, two kicks of the game and you come away with the draw and you come away with a win in, in Perth. So it could have been an entirely different story. But how often have we said that over the last 18 years, the last two decades? It could have, would have, should have. Well, the reality is it was zero and five. And that is what all the teams, all the franchises now heading into this weekend, they've got to now carry that on. You know, there always has to be that little bit of external pressure, knowing that these Australian sides still can't get the chocolates over New Zealand teams. So, um, you know, you do say that the headlines write themselves. And unfortunately, the Australian teams are getting increasingly frustrated, the sides that are losing. Like the Waratahs are zero and nine to start 2021. Um, <clears throat> Could be 0-13 and 13 by the end of the year. It's not going to get easier because the Waratahs came up against a Hurricane side that weren't particularly brilliant in Aotearoa, but we all know what the opposition that they come up weekly against is. Liam, um, fill us in from across the ditch, mate. What's been the reaction to that opening weekend of fixtures? And um, can you see a way where either the Reds or the Brumbies can, can go on now and, and go, I guess, four straight wins to potentially reach the final or are we staring down a, an in all likelihood a, a New Zealand decider in uh, in five weeks time it's a tough ask isn't it to win uh win four on the bounce against Kiwi teams look uh I was really impressed with the Brumbies I think uh they stood out you know head and shoulders above the the other Australian teams and I thought they were extremely unlucky to to lose that final in Brisbane as well and I just I think um the difference that sets them apart is, is their style of rugby that really troubles the Kiwi teams. They're strong at set piece, they're strong defensively, and then they've got, you know, attacking players that can hurt you as well. So, you know, while the Reds won um, the Australian competition, I think their style of play more plays into the hands of, of, of the Kiwi sides. You know, they're, they're more uh, flamboyant, they're more run and gun, they're going to attack more. 
and the Brumbies are, are a team that can can really put you under pressure. You know, they're, they're going to play a bit more territory. They're going to try and squeeze you at the set piece. They're going to bring line speed and and you know Kiwi teams really struggle and, and get frustrated if they if they can't use the ball and play. So look, I do hold some hope for the Brumbies. I think um, you know it's a massive match for them this week in Hamilton against the Chiefs. Um, the Reds back in Brisbane, you know, potentially they could go well, but they've got a tough ask against the Crusaders. So, the four on the bounce is going to be pretty difficult uh, to, to disrupt a, an all-Kiwi final. Yeah, brilliant try from Tom Banks in that game for the Brumbies. But as you say, they're, they're a team that's able to put the squeeze on, on New Zealand opposition, and, and that's probably a trait across the other Australian franchises that just isn't possible. Um, the Waratahs-Hurricanes became pretty much a, a tit-for-tat there, and, and all the Hurricanes had to do was spin it two or three passes wide. I mean, they gave up 48 points themselves, but uh, the Waratahs giving up 63 uh, in a game these days is, is pretty extraordinary and just shows the uh, the amount, the size of the challenge they have to, to turn things around this week. Um, Christy, you were certainly critical, I guess, of Brad Thorne's selections um, last week. Um, we've also noted they, they partied pretty hard for a team that had won a domestic competition and it had been 10 years. So I guess... You know, as all great coaches say, you, you've got to enjoy success. And and they certainly did that. Um, moved a few guys back to the bench, clearly, uh, and left a few guys out. And then they had the James O'Connor um, concussion, I think it was, as well. Um, it was always going to be a tough ask to start with. But did Brad Thorne contribute to that by perhaps not treating the match as he should have? Yes, I think so. <laughs> I think unquestionably. I, I, you just think of the approach that it, that it sends you know, we've, we've won, let's go party, let's go party, you know, deep into the night, into the afternoon on the Sunday, we'll come back. We'll, so we'll, we'll forget about, you know, 36 hours of crucial recovery time. Then we'll have to go a few days um, later across the ditch. And we know it's generally like a, a six hour sort of episode between hotels and, and flights. And, um, and then you, you decide that you're going to have your three or four better forwards come off the bench. I just thought it, it gave them an escape valve. It goes, no, no, we, we, we won't worry so much. But Australian rugby needs to just continue to build momentum. And, and that it didn't. You know, Kalani Thomas looks like a good, young, exciting player, but he hadn't started a Super Rugby match. Um, you know, had, yes, he's got the settling influence of James O'Connor outside him, but we've got also a new eight because Harry Wilson isn't there. Um, it just it, it didn't it, like it didn't um, pass the pub test for me. I don't think at all. And the Reds, we know that the Brumbies. We we should be actually talking more glowingly about the Brumbies because if anyone had an excuse not to show up, it was the Brumbies. You know they they they're down troops. They're down James Slipper. They're down Pete Samu. They're down Jerome Brown. Tom Cusack. They've got quite a few forwards that are out. Yet we saw a Brumbies team absolutely take it and we saw how passionate, uh, how much it meant to them to have a really strong performance. And that to me, once again, showed the maturity of the coaching of, of Dan McKellar and Laurie Fisher to be able to get these guys up again uh, and really push the Crusaders to, to the death. And, um, you know, Australian rugby, there's not that many people covering the game, unfortunately, and that shows you where it is. But I reckon 20 years ago, if the Reds have carried that same approach in to another match um, across the ditch after a similar sort of, you know, domestic competition into Aotearoa, I reckon the Australian media would have absolutely pummeled Thorn and the Reds 
for, for taking that approach into the game. Um, you know, we all love to live in, in hope and have this, you know, this fantasy world that Australian rugby is going to turn the corner at some point in time. Well, this might have been the opportunity to turn the corner. Unfortunately, we've missed that shot now. Yeah, I tend to, agree, tend to agree, and there's uh, a former colleague here at ESPN, the great, late, great Greg Groudon, I feel uh, probably would have been the man to uh, really go hard uh, in the in the midst of what happened um, there in uh, Dunedin on the weekend, Christy. Um, Liam, what does, I guess, uh, certainly we know the Waratahs and Rebels, uh, your tweet over the weekend, it could be a long, long five weeks for them um, coming up. Uh, what does that do to all the, I, I guess, the ins and outs and the, the negotiations that are going on for the competition next year. We've already heard over here that um, Andy Marinos and, and both Hamish McLennan as well, talking about the, the benefits of Super Rugby AU. There's been something to ponder now, given the, the successful ratings and 42,000 at Suncorp and having an Aussie winner every week. Um, from a New Zealand perspective, what does, do you think, a, a Rebels and Waratahs whitewash and, I think the force will get a win at some point in the competition, but we might be heading for, you know, as little as, uh, sorry, as few as five or, or six wins collectively for the Aussie franchises. What does that do for a potential trans-Tasman competition next year, or at least the negotiations over the next few weeks? Yeah, I guess um, the credibility of the competition needs contests. You know, that's that's the ethos of sport that you want to you wanna turn up and... and you know, have some unknown about the, the sense of a result. So, you know, if you've got a, a Rebels coming to town in their current state or the Waratahs, you know, coming to play the Blues this week after the back of conceding 11 tries against the Hurricanes at home in Sydney, uh, you know, if you're a punter thinking of going along to a game like that, you're, you, you gen- it's pretty, I mean, the, the Blues start uh, $1.01 this week against the Waratahs. And I think that's the, the shortest odds in history against the Waratahs. So the result by and large is, is a foregone conclusion and that's not what sport wants. And particularly for a competition that's looking to bring in two new startup teams. And, you know, we've seen that across the history of, of other sporting codes as well as within Super Rugby with the Sunwolves and the like and, the, you know, the Southern Kings and how these teams that, you know, that we're looking to bring in in terms of Moana Pacifica and, and the Fiji Endura they're going to struggle initially. And so when you're looking at bringing in two new teams that are going to struggle, the, the 10 existing teams need to need to uh, retain the integrity of the competition. So, uh, yeah, when you're looking to launch a new competition like um, New Zealand and Australia are next year, uh, they need contests, they need credibility. And uh, so, you know, for the, for, the, for the fans out there, the Waratahs and the, and the Rebels really need to get their act together. Christy, finally on this one, does um, or do underperforming Australian sides over the next few weeks, does that suck the, the momentum and uh, I guess the, uh, the confidence out of the players ahead of the France series? And I know there's a little bit of a gap there, probably, um, well, if no team makes the final, it'll be about three weeks before that first test against France. But having come from such a high of uh, three, you know, brilliant Reds, Brumbies clashes and, and certainly a feeling of, of momentum and intensity and of what, Dave Rennie might be able to put together. Um, will that be sucked out of um, the Wallabies uh, squad and preparations for the France series by a really, really poor trans-Tasman competition? Only if the Reds and the Brumbies don't get probably three wins. You know, two, they, they might still have that bit of confidence um, off the back of, we know that they lost that first round. So if they go 50% from here, I think they almost take it. I, I don't, all the people thinking that they might be able to go four straight 
when is an Australian team? Oh, I'd love to say, oh, let's get Kate Lorimer here, the, the stats guru, formerly at Fox Downstand. Let's get her across. When is an Australian team won four straight games against New Zealand? I don't know. It, it, it'd be hard to imagine. Yes, it would take you there, suck it out a little bit. I think more so it sucks the oxygen out for those watching on. Probably less so the players at this particular point in time because we know that the Brumbies and the, and the Reds are going to, you know, of the 38-man squad that Rennie is looking at, they're probably going to take up 26 six spots, you would think. Uh, and so they should. It's a great point that you're right, Islam, and it hasn't been dis- discussed nearly as much as it should here on this side of the ditch around the integrity of the competition. Perhaps, you know, one or two of those Australian sides who struggle as well. And, um, you know, you get four teams that are looking pretty poor at the moment. Um, An interesting thing that Andy Marinos spoke about earlier in the week was philosophical discussions. He said that he'd had with his New Zealand counterparts around where do they want the direction of the game to go? How do they all get a bit stronger? And yes, foreign foreigners to bulk up some of those squads, um, might might uh, take place, and and you look at you know the force at the moment. Half their team is well, about half their team. Their starting team is from from overseas. Um, the Rebels have had a few. We know that the uh, the Brumbies have once or twice had a couple of guys to come fill holes. It, it, it's a really it's a catch twenty two. Do you try to help Australian rugby or or that franchise itself, or do you try to look at like we've got to do everything for the betterment of of the Australian game? But you don't want a, a foreigner being picked necessarily in a position like where Thomas Cabelli is at nine. If there's not you know if other uh, franchises are also going to be looking at a nine from overseas, so that's something they they're very conscious of. They're not just going to start piling all these players from um, overseas into franchises, but they'll be pretty selective. And I think they have to, because there's no way, I think at the current moment, Australian sides can regularly compete against New Zealand um, just with, with, with the talent that's on show in Australia purely. Yeah. Cause I'm sorry, sorry I was just going to pose a question to you boys. I guess that, you know, if you've consistently got um, maybe two of the five teams struggling, you know, does that question of whether Australian rugby has the depth to support five teams and, you know, we've seen the balance sheets pretty um, clearly laid laid out as well, you know, that, that sort of question probably, you know, doesn't go away either. So maybe that's a way to, to, to counterbalance that, to bring in some, some players from offshore to, to bolster the ranks. I think absolutely. And, you know, I've written about this before, potential um, draft and, and transfer system where we, we kind of, if we were to make Super Rugby the competition that I think we all think it could be and and really drive that fan engagement and interest. And um, there's a number of, of options there that we can borrow from from other sports. But um, you're certainly right, Liam, about the competitiveness at the moment. If you've only got to look at the NRL, it just blows my mind that they're thinking about bringing in another two teams potentially in the future, given uh, you could probably have the semifinals tomorrow and the grand final next week. And and we'd all know who was uh, who was going to be in there. There's a lot of teams making up the numbers this year, my dragons included. Uh, boys, let's move on to uh, a bit of the test season. Of course, we've um, we've got a little bit of water under the bridge to go between now and then. But certainly, um, the calendar is at last locked in, and and I think that's that's great news after after what happened last year. Um, Liam, we'll start in New Zealand with you. Uh, I put it to you that probably Italy pulling the pin is um, is not the worst result in the world. Um, you've now got Fiji and Tonga coming to face the All Blacks um, around New Zealand. Um, should be a great series. 
But I guess it will depend on how many players those guys, sorry, those two nations can get back. Um, the European season, as we know, with the, with the French coming down here, goes right up to the end of, of June there with a the top 14 final. Um, we know the, the Fijian and, and the Tongan players are scattered all around Europe and there's the some in Japan, which we know will be well and truly finished by then. But um, I guess, mate, um, a good result for New Zealand rugby. And, uh, and what do you see the All Blacks getting out of this series? Yes, I guess I'd probably describe it as the best of a of a bad case scenario, in uh, in that you know you're never going to have a, a great uh, July series um, outside of France, which which the, the Wallabies have got, and a British and Irish Lions year. You know all the other teams are heavily weakened, so you're very restricted in in the, the credibility or the strength of the opposition. So uh, it will be a, a a good showcase of of Pacific rugby, and you know the more that uh, countries um, in general play the, the the island nations the better that they're going to get from that exposure but yeah um major major challenges i think particularly for fiji you know they're in a fiji's in a state of lockdown at the moment so domestically um accessing players is difficult and as you mentioned you know um accessing club players abroad is always a challenge to bring them back and then what sort of shape are they in so I think realistically, you know, you're going to be looking at some some pretty wide margins in, in those games. Um, and, yeah, I think the All Blacks will probably take a focus of, of more on themselves and, and trying to, uh, you know, test themselves in, in certain areas. But, um, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see the level of interest, you know, after maybe the first test, first couple of tests, whether that wanes, you know, if there's a few blowout margins and, um, and there's better potential series offshore in Australia and, and South Africa and the like. You know, if you're a rugby purist, you know, you might be looking at those almost. So um, as a as a build up to the rugby championship, it's probably not ideal. Uh, you know, it might allow for some some experimentation potentially. But at the same time, uh, they might, I think they'll probably more want to solidify some combinations having had, you know, really limited um, tests last year, such a condensed season. And um, it's going to be a real challenge coming off the back of that into, into the rugby championship when the, the Wallabies and the Springboks are going to be uh, far battle-hardened. Yeah, it's a, it's a great point looking a little bit further ahead. Um, Christy, uh, the Wallabies, uh, we know the, the <coughs> that have come on, um, given France's challenges, they're bringing kind of two plane loads down to to combat this, um, these three games in 11 days, uh, if all things going as we think they might in an all New Zealand final in Trans Tasman, will will give, I guess, Dave Rennie plenty of time to get his group together, um, and certainly no quarantine issues to open the season like when like when they went to New Zealand for the Bledisloe last year. Um, mate, how do you think he'll he'll see this this challenge, and how how will he play these these first couple of tests? Um, will he try and go all out and, and win the first two or kind of experiment between tests one and two? How, how do you see him uh, approaching the series? Oh, I don't know. You and I stood next to Dave Rennie about a week ago when he um, addressed a couple of the media following the announcement of Cadbury being the new official partners of, uh, of, of Rugby Australia and the Wallabies um, and the Wallaroos. Um, he, he said then that there might be some players that play every minute. I was a little bit surprised by that. Um, he also said that Michael Hooper probably he will he will certainly be in the mix to play all three, but he might not start in all three. He kind of gave the hint that there might be another captain in the works. <clears throat> he referenced James O'Connor. He referenced Alan Alalatoa. So 
I think there has to be a little bit of experimentation in the sense that I'd like to see a few of the younger players come into the mix that were maybe stood behind Hooper last year, stood behind Nick White, stood behind James O'Connor. Um, I don't think you can go wildly, though, because reality is we all know and we keep talking about it, but they had one win from six matches last year. Uh, they should be targeting a minimum of two, probably three wins here. Let's be honest. France are coming off the back of a 1,000 matches in their season. It's all been incredibly disrupted with, with COVID, with some crowds there, no crowds there. <clears throat> Speaking to Freddie Michelak, the other day, he said that he was looking. Like he knew that the players were looking forward to playing in front of crowds, so that will give them a bit of a boost. But you know, they're not going to have a, like a whole heap of their best players for the first match. We know that they've performed well with a second or a third string team. We saw that during last year's Alternations Cup. But the Wallabies, with the combinations that they have, with the, the period of time that they should have going in there, I think nothing but a three-nil whitewash. Is I think uh, I think that is the barometer. I think they should be targeting it. I think that should be realistic too. Liam, can I ask you, mate, about um, about Michael Hooper? And clearly, there's the heir apparent there now in in Fraser McBride, and and we know um, New Zealand's been in a similar situation, I guess, with Sam Kane and, and Artie Sevilla in in recent times. But what's the New Zealand, I, I guess, um, thoughts on on Hooper and? <laughs> And uh, and McWright um, is Hooper viewed, I guess, in the same eyes as perhaps he was a few years ago. We know the the combination with Pocock um, had instant success, and then not a lot thereafter. Um, if you were Dave Rennie uh, or the thinking in New Zealand, would would Fraser McWright be getting a go in this series ahead of Michael Hooper, and perhaps um, would the Wallabies rotate the captaincy as a result? Um, what's the thinking, I guess, in looking? Uh, across the ditch from, from your side at the number seven jersey. Yes, yeah, interesting scenario, isn't it, when you've got your, your captain who's sort of been absent for a, for a period of time, I guess, you know, out of sight, out of mind. Um, from a New Zealand perspective, we haven't seen him, um, you know, unless you're an avid follower of, of the Japanese um, top league. So, uh, but I do believe that, you know, your captain's extremely important to the culture of the team and, um, you know, everything tends to run through them. You know, you see your playing group, um, selection, um, standards, everything sort of flows on from there. So, um, and we have seen instances of players really benefiting from that, that time abroad, you know, going and playing in Japan can, can really um, refresh players and, and both from a physical and, and mental perspective. So uh, it's a real juggling act in terms of bringing those players back. Do, do you slot them in straight away or do they have to sort of, come off the pine and, and, and earn the key. There's been a lot of debate about that here with Brody Retallick and, and uh, Bowden Barrett and the like as well. And it's going to be really interesting to see how Ian Foster manages that dynamic when you've got players in those same roles playing really well, the Rich, Richie Moangas of the world. So do you do you pick on form um, in, your, in your domestic competition or do you back proven test experience? So... Um, look, I think Michael Hooper's been uh, the leader of the Wallabies for a long time, and, and I expect Rennie to, to back him again. Um, but you do have to encourage domestic form. Um, so you have to manage that dynamic, or you encourage more players to leave um, and say and open up that door and say, well, if, if, because if you don't value that, then, then players are, will, will get frustrated and, and, and leave. So 
it's a really challenging dynamic for um, both international coaches to manage this year. <clears throat> Brucey, I'd love to see Fraser McRight given the, the seven jersey in the first test. I think it would send a, a great statement. But I think we're, <coughs> we've all been going, a lot of people question, and, and maybe this isn't the thinking of the Australian management, but we all think from an outside perspective, outside the team, you know, how would this Wallabies team go without Michael Hooper? And he's been such a cog for this team for a long, long time. How would they go without him? Have him on the bench, bring him on. Let's see if the Wallabies actually do rise if he comes on with 35 minutes to go. I think it'd be great just to, just to um, not to experiment necessarily, but just to get a, a different picture. Yeah, McGrath reminds me of, of Hooper at the very start of his career when he, he really was an on-baller and perhaps that's a part of his game. I guess with the onset of, of playing with a combination with Pocock that perhaps started to to drift a little bit, but um, yeah, I'm with you, Christy. I'd like to see him get a start uh, sometime in July there against France. Uh, boys, right, we'll move on to number three for today. And Liam, this is one you've been covering now in New Zealand for for months um, and perhaps even longer. Uh, it's it's been enthralling watching from over this side of the Tasman because I think we we know we're we're headed on the same trajectory at, at some point and. That's been expressed by um by both Hamish McLennan and and Andy Marinos. Um, just private equity. Uh, I guess in a nutshell, we know they're they're creating a, a separate entity to to sell off. Um, and we know that the major gripes um that are there, but it's basically descended into certainly what it looks like from over here is that everyone versus the players, the players' union. Um, we saw with the the Forsyth Bar. Um, little sidebar last week as well arrive. Um, mate, can you just, I, I guess, sum up the situation, where it's at and and where you think it'll go uh, in the coming, well, hopefully weeks for you, but uh, it could be more like months, I guess. Yeah, it's become a real um, dogfight, you know, a real public slanging match where everyone's throwing mud and, and seeing, you know, what sticks the longest. So, um they, need, they really need to get in a room and sort it out because it, it's becoming really ugly and, and you know, emotive. And um, I guess in a nutshell, <clears throat> what you've got is you've got New Zealand rugby who uh, favour yeah, the sell-off of 12.5% of their commercial rights to, to Silver Lake, the US private investment company. And you've got the players who have come in late with an alternative to uh, go down the IPO route and sell 5% to um, Kiwis and list on the on the NZN, NZX and, um, and try and raise capital that way. Um, that avenue probably doesn't have the same capability in terms of um, uh, raising revenue and, you know, driving things such as, um, you know, the potential for, um, you know, New Zealand rugby to create their own streaming service to to tap into new overseas fans and, and try and monetize um, that avenue. Um, <clears throat> one of the major problems and the, the issues at the heart of this, and I think what Australian rugby will, will learn from the most is the players weren't consulted properly in the in the early stages of this, and and they don't believe that all avenues outside of of Silver Lake were explored. And so that's what's really led to this dragging on and on and on. And I think Australian rugby will learn from that and get the Players Association involved early and, and really have them at the heart of that process and, and integrate them into that. And I think that's one way of avoiding the real conflict that, that's going to stretch this on for, yeah, potentially weeks and, and possible possibly months yet. So 
I do believe that they'll get there eventually, but publicly they, they remain poles apart and uh, very conflicted in their, in their views of what's the best way to, um, to raise capital that New Zealand rugby desperately needs. Um, you know, for a long time, the, uh, the professional game has um, effectively bankrupt the community game. And that disparity uh, has created all sorts of issues in terms of participation and um, engagement and Um, there's a lot of water to run under the bridge yet, but um, hopefully they can get in the room and sort it out sometime soon and, and we can get back to enjoying the footy. Yeah, I was talking to a, a Kiwi fella over on this side um, on the weekend, actually, uh, and he was saying that um, if Steve Chu was still in charge, we wouldn't have this situation right now. Um, just how bad, I guess, is that relationship between the players and the players' union and and NZR and, and Mark Robinson in particular, because as you say, there has been a lot of mudslinging there and there's been a lot of, lot of leaks coming out of all of which you've been on top of. Um, uh, just where are things at, I guess, from a, from a relationship perspective and, and, and can it be mended quickly? Yeah, I think it's probably at the lowest ebb it's ever been, it's fair to say. Um, you've got a lot of, a lot of emotion, um, a lot of personality, a lot of agendas flying around and, you know, I do think that both sides of the fence, they want what's best for the New Zealand game, but they just have very different, differing views about how to get there. And, and you've, you know, the longer this has gone on, the more um, influential voices you've seen come out in terms of Richie McCaw and um, Steve Hansen and, you know, David Kirk's involved with Forsyth Bar and, and New Zealand Rugby Players Association, the, the 1987 World Cup winning captain. So, you know, these are very um, well-known um, former All Blacks or, or rugby identities, and and the public tend to resonate with with those those sorts of voices. So, um, yeah, it's 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 far from resolved. Um, I do think that that they'll get there, um, but you know, it's a very a unique situation. I don't think any other union in the world would have a situation where the, the players' association, through their collective bargaining process, uh, could block a deal of this nature, um, but it's 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 a relationship that has historically worked, but it's certainly not working right now. And and um, you know, for for rugby's sake, they need a. They've had about ten days of mediation and haven't got anywhere, and now they're having a break from that. So hopefully, when they get next get around the table, they can make some progress for for everyone involved. Christy, do you anticipate similar problems here in Australia? We know Rupert were were particularly strong last year around, um, I guess, the, the almost complete disintegration of the game, um, which eventually led to Raylene Castle's departure. We know that relationship had broken down completely with Rupa. Um, things certainly seem to be in better shape now with, with McLennan and Marinos. Um, Justin Harrison is the head of, of Rugby Union Players Association who sits and stand with commentary. So we've got an interesting little um, crossover there as well. Um, mate, when do you see this happening for Australia? Will it be after the New Zealand process is done completely, do you think? And and will it be, can it be smooth sailing unlike what's happened across the ditch? I think the hope would have been that Rugby Australia and they flew, what well, would have been about a month now ago, as soon as the borders opened, they flew over to have some meetings with, with New Zealand rugby counterparts to try to learn what they had um, found over the, the previous months. Um, 
But the longer this carries on, Rugby Australia probably has to start to actually lead a little bit here rather than perhaps react to see what what happens on the other side of the ditch. Um, uh, Rugby Australia and Australian rugby is in a completely... I think it's, you know, we we all know that there's a lot of similarities and we're in the same time zones. We're ultimately wanting to play in the same competition, but it's a different set of circumstances. Um, Here, we, we know that it's not... It's not the be all and the end all. Not every kid who grows up wanting to be a wallaby. That's not the case um, in, in New Zealand, where where most kids want to put be an All Black. So I, I expect that there won't be as much. Um, uh, you know, there's not going to be as much media coverage around it. There's probably not going to be as much um, uh, pushback. I think the players' union tends to know uh, that they'll probably know that there isn't needed an injection of money and that it's possibly a gamble that is worth taking um whether or not we can we can have an australian at play someone like an andrew forrest who seemingly wants to to and has rugby at the best interest and, and dear to his heart as opposed to selling to an off offshore um foreign entities is something that is is well worth considering well he's already brought uh, rm williams back into australian hands uh so maybe uh, he'll do the same with with Rugby Australia uh, moving forward as well. But Chrissy, they're clearly not in a position, I guess we know just the absolute dire straits of the finances, the loans they've got from World Rugby and, and HSBC as well. Um, perhaps New Zealand are a little bit uh, more uh, financial, well, clearly are than, than Rugby Australia. So something, something's got to be done. Um, and do you think, I guess, most of the the fans will will see it that way that, you know, uh, without a significant cash injection from somewhere that the game simply won't survive moving forward because we know, um, as uh, Hamish McLennan said with the release of the, the annual report, that the going amateur um, back to Saturday afternoon, uh, kickoffs potentially on, on ABC on virtually Shoot Shield style coverage back in the day, um, that was a very real possibility for a while. Yeah, and look, he also made the point that you have one chance to get this really right. You know, you can't start just doing this willy-nilly, you know, in another five or ten years' time. You know, one big injection of cash would be great. Um, there is a they, – they certainly do want to inject it into the grassroots. Um, that seems to be the buzzword going around now. They've, they've, they've picked that up finally. But, but you know, how you find the right balance between trying to find a solution – to have more Australians play here or indeed uh, a competition like Japan or New Zealand where you can potentially have all these uh, these three or four nations that might play in the same tournament at some stage throughout the year. So as Dave Rennie would say, you're comparing apples with apples. That's the big one, I think, at the moment. Trying to find some solutions where you're not losing your players to France and England because then you can, you know, the Japanese season doesn't go for nearly as long. They're a little bit more relaxed. Um, around the international laws, it would seem. So um, we know that New Zealand and Australia play in the same rugby championship competitions, so you're not going to be pulling them out and having them not be able to play international rugby. So finding some solutions as well is, 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 is so crucial right now because we know that we, we can't just throw a million dollars at players like Michael Hooper. Um, as much as it would be nice, you can't in today's day and age. You've got to be able to select two or three, really, and 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 hope that they're they're the real deal. Yeah, I know. Certainly, the uh, the special levy that remains here in New South Wales with 
uh, any junior player or any player out there um, funding partly uh, the Waratah salaries at the top end says it all and why things uh, need to change in the coming years. Um, boys, thanks very much today. Um, I, I know we could go on for a lot longer, particularly around the competition structure and Champions Leagues and all these different bits and pieces and we'd probably do a better job than those in charge. But um, we better leave it for today. Uh, thanks again, Liam, for, for tuning in, dialing in from across the ditch, mate. We'll be following your your New Zealand private equity uh, coverage with interest. Uh, I hope it doesn't give you continue to give you headaches for, for too much longer. Um, but, mate, uh, thanks again. Anytime, boys. Great to see you. Maybe you can ask for a little bit of the side money on them. <laughs> It'd be nice, wouldn't it? Yeah, it's siphoning a bit off. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit of chunk for all of us uh, here at ESPN Scrum Reset. And, Christy, uh, thanks again, mate. Enjoy the footy this weekend.